Chapter 23, we've heard it already uh, this morning, this afternoon, let's hear from the Gospel of Luke as well. I'm going to go back up to verse 32 in chapter 23 and read through verse 43. This is the holy and errant word of God. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me, and you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this word. We do pray that you would write its eternal truths upon our hearts. That we might reflect upon the glory of our Savior and your dear Son this day. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke states that Christ was crucified in just one kind of small, rather simple, straightforward verse, verse 33 there. He says, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. It's just a short phrase. Just a, a little clause, there they crucified him. And yet in that one little clause hangs all the hope in all the universe. If it's not there, there is none. If it is there, there is hope. The Luke states it simply here, it's not a, a passive scene that's happening here at the cross. In fact, there's a lot of activity that is happening, that's going on. We could even say there's, there's a lot of commotion that's going on in the scene. Luke tells us back up in verse 27, if you look there, he says that as Jesus and the criminals were making their way up to Golgotha, to the skull, to Mount Calvary, he says, quote, a great multitude of people and women followed them. And these women, they were not following Jesus and the criminals passively. No, 
Luke tells us here that they were mourning and they were lamenting for him. And in this culture, that means that they would have been screaming out. They would have been wailing at the top of their lungs. They would have been weeping loudly. But it wasn't just them that was making a commotion. In verse 35, we're told that the crowd and women were not the only ones, but the rulers, we're told, were scoffing at him, yelling at him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They're yelling at him. But it's not just the rulers that are yelling at him. The soldiers are also mocking him. They're coming up and they're offering him sour wine and out as men do when they're joking and mocking and playing tricks. They were no doubt laughing. And all the while they were saying, Luke tells us in verse 37, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And they were at the foot of the cross. They were casting lots for his garments. Game playing is never a quiet affair. There is quite a lot of activity. There's nothing passive in this scene. But then we have the additional voices. Those are the two men who hung on crosses next to Christ. They were reviling him, Luke says. The word revile is actually the word blaspheming. They, they were blaspheming Christ. You saw in Matthew, as we read it there, and Mark also makes it clear that both thieves the one on his right and the one on his left, they were both reviling Christ. It's a, it's a scene that is filled with voices and filled with activity. But what I want you to see, especially this afternoon, or, is this great transformation that happens in this passage. The great activity that happens here is seemingly most unlikely transformation. As I said, Matthew and Mark both say that both criminals were reviling Jesus, both the one hanging on his right and the one hanging on his left. But Luke, here in this passage, has only one of them reviling Jesus or throwing insults at him and then the other rebuking that one. So how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, I think we must understand that both of the criminals, the one on his left and the one on his right, were both hurling insults at Jesus. They were joining in with all of the other voices that were hurling insults at him, but then there's a change in one of them. There's a transformation that occurs. The one criminal says to Jesus with a harsh tone in verse 39, are you not the Christ? It's not if you are the Christ. Now, it's, it's much more accusatory here, a kind of hurling an insult at him. Are you not the Christ? Then why don't you save yourself and save us too? He's a man of the world, and so he joins his voices with the people of the world in this text. He is going to hurl insults. And he says in a, in a command to Christ, save yourself and us. Irony's great there, isn't it? As a reader on this side of the, the crucifixion, on this side of the burial, and on this side of the resurrection, we know that Christ could not save himself and, quote, us at the same time. 
The only way he could save us was for him to not save himself. He had to be made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. There was no other way. And that unrepentant criminal was focused on the immediate, Jesus, save us now if you can. But the other criminal, he experiences a radical change. He's transformed and he believes. The seemingly most unlikely of candidates for believing, believes. He has just been reviling Christ. He's just with the other criminal who been been lobbing insults and blasphemies at Christ. I don't know what he had been saying. Maybe his words were along the lines of what the rulers were saying. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Or maybe his words were like those of the soldiers who said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. We don't know. But, but he's now clearly objecting when the other criminal insinuates that they, the criminals in Christ himself, are hanging there on equal terms. This is a bridge too far for the one criminal. Why? Because he's been changed. One moment he's a mocker and he's an enemy and he's a hater of Christ and the next moment he's a believer. In a moment. He rebukes the other criminal. Now think about this. No one is rebuking anyone in this passage. You have the crowd that is wagging their heads as they're walking by and hurling insults at Jesus. And no one's rebuking them. You have the religious leaders that are hurling insults at him and, and screaming at him. And no one's rebuking them. You have the soldiers that are yelling at Jesus, and no one is telling them to get into line. Not the women, not the people that followed Jesus, not the disciples, not even John who laid his head on Jesus' breast, not Peter who was always so bold. No one is rebuking anybody in this passage. Not even Jesus is rebuking people. And yet, if there is ever a passage in all the Scripture that demands for there to be rebuke, it's this. But this criminal, this criminal rebukes. He says to the other criminal in verse 40, Do you not fear God? That you're under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's hanging there on a tree about to die. And he believes in Jesus. And if everyone's saved in the scriptures. He is surely the least likely candidate. He's a criminal. He's a mocker. And he's about to die. And yet he's the one who believes. It's quite a confession he makes too. First. He recognizes Jesus' innocence. He says in verse 49. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
His witness is very similar to the witness that we have heard over and over in the gospel up to this point. Pilate will do it three times in chapter 23, verse 4. He will say this, I find no guilt in this man. He says it again in verse 14 of chapter 23. You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges. And again, for a third time, in verse 22, Pilate will say, a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving of death. And Herod's not the only one. He will testify that Pilate said the same thing in verse 15. I mean, that Herod said the same thing. He said, neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. And now you have this criminal echoing what was said by Pilate three times and what has been said by Herod. This man has done nothing wrong. They're both condemned. They're both about ready to die. And he says, I know that he does not deserve death. And indeed, he doesn't. Jesus was fulfilling what had been prophesied in Isaiah 53. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. This, this criminal recognized who Jesus was. The second this criminal recognizes who he is, that he himself is a sinner. He doesn't deny it. He looks at Christ and he sees perfection and he looks at himself and he sees a sinner. Verse 41. And we indeed justly, we're hanging here justly. This is all necessary that we would know who Christ is and that we would know who we are. And so this man did not look to himself for salvation. He did not look in, within for salvation. He knew he had nothing to depend upon, so he looks to Christ. He looks to Christ in faith, and in a wonderfully simple yet profound expression of faith, he says, remember me. Remember me. It's a good cry for someone who knows that they have absolutely nothing to offer. And they have to receive everything. Remember me. Third, he amazingly understood that Christ's death upon the cross did not mean that he failed to be the Messiah and Savior of his people, but rather that this was the very way he would do so in the very route by which he would be enthroned as king. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Not if, but when you come into your kingdom. What faith. This man who had so little to go on, so very little reason to believe. In fact, he had every reason not to believe. And yet he believed. How do we explain such a radical transformation? How do you explain that? The answer is the seemingly most unlikely believer is saved by the activity of the seemingly most unlikely Savior. 
Christ is not passive in this scene either. He is very active. So active that he is saving this man next to him in the very moments that he's breathing his very last breath. You think upon this scene and Christ is, is in his moment of greatest weakness. His body is being torn asunder Physical strain would have been absolutely excruciating. But the real burden was that his soul was being forced to endure an unrelenting anguish. Unlike anything that you and I can comprehend with our little finite mind. Because the infinite Son of God is receiving and experiencing the feverish wrath of His holy, sovereign, all-powerful, heavenly Father. Because He was made sin for us. Father was executing his judgment upon that sin. And all the while men were reviling him and tempting him and saying, save yourself. Save yourself if you can. And yet in this week's state, his mind was not on self. It was on others. A seemingly most unlikely Savior hanging on a cross, surrounded by the noise of mockers all around. He prays in verse 34, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's no passivity here. He is very active. His weakest moment, and yet he demonstrates remarkable strength and love as he actively prays for the forgiveness of those who are causing his death upon that tree. Forgiveness that he knows, that he knows can only come if he dies upon that tree. Could there have ever been a more effectual prayer than this one prayed while the Son of God hung naked before his Father on that cross? And its effectiveness is immediately evidenced. Many will say, well, it is, it is shown to be effective on that day at Pentecost when no doubt some of the people that were on the, in that crowd at the foot of the cross are now in that crowd among the multitude of people in Acts when the Spirit is poured out upon God and a multitude is brought to saving faith. And that is the answer to Jesus' prayer. And I say, Amen. Absolutely. But if we just relegate it to then, I think we've missed one. So I think his prayer here clearly was effective for this thief that hung next to him. This one who is hanging next to him, who against all reason inexplicably believes 
in him was surely an answer to this prayer. This thief wasn't responsible for putting Jesus to death like these religious leaders or Roman soldiers, but he joined in with those that did by ridiculing, and thus he was indirectly involved. And when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, the thief was surely included in that prayer. In fact, we can be assured that Christ prayed for him. Because there is no greater evidence that is needed than his transformation. Because no one can be born again. No one can come to saving faith apart from Christ's intercession for them. He's the Savior of His people. And this thief was one of His people. There's nothing on the face of it that would elicit faith in the midst of this scene. It isn't as though Jesus just healed a lame person or just gave sight to the blind or just cast out a demon. He's hanging there in weakness. The world is set against him. He's breathing his last breaths and a man who is dying next to him looks over and believes in him. Why? Because even at his weakest moment, the Savior prayed for his forgiveness. And the Father through the Son grants him forgiveness. The criminal had given a very nebulous when you come into your kingdom. He didn't know the time. He probably had in mind some return of Christ. But Christ grants forgiveness. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. I say to you, with all the authority that I have in and of myself. And I have all authority. Be with me today in paradise. In his most weakened state, he most triumphantly grants him forgiveness. So that when those eyes of the thief closed in death, in that very moment, he was with his Christ and his Lord and his Savior in paradise in the midst of his very glory. Because Christ not only prays for His forgiveness, not only grants His forgiveness, but He secures His forgiveness. The very next words He utters upon the cross, as Luke tells us, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Luke tells us, and having said that, He breathed His last. A seemingly most unlikely believer Seemingly, seemingly most unlikely Savior. Dwelling in paradise and eternity forevermore together. Even in His weakest state, His love never failed His people. And friends, we have a Savior who saves His people. Not potentially saves them. Not possibly saves them. But saves His people. He prays for their forgiveness. He grants their forgiveness. He secures their forgiveness. 
And I don't think it's a mistake that the very last person to believe upon Jesus in his earthly life before his death was the seemingly most unlikely convert there could have been. So that you and I would know, no matter where we are at, no matter who we are, that faith is a gift. And he saves his people. And so if I have faith, all I can do is give him praise. And if I have not faith, then I can look to him and say, give it to me. An unlikely convert, give it to me. And he saves his people. A seemingly unlikely Savior saves seemingly unlikely people. Sinners like us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you on this day that we celebrate and reflect upon the death of our Savior. That he is a Savior for sinners, come and came into the world to seek and to save the lost. That he came as a physician for the sick, not for the healthy, for the sinner, not for the righteous. We all sit and stand here this morning as sinners in need of a Savior. And we're thankful that we have a Savior that accomplishes what He set out to do. Save the seemingly most unlikely. That we might dwell with you at peace forevermore. In Christ's name.